0: Today we have with us Dan Merz. He is the pastor of Emmaus Lutheran Church in Livingston, Montana. He's a first-timer, so welcome, Dan, to the Godestines crowd.
1: Thanks, Jason. Glad to be here. Long-time listener, first-time caller.
0: Oh, wonderful. I'm trying to do my best uh, Rush Limbaugh impression.
1: That or I did a lot of Jim Rome growing up working outside, so I hope I have a good take and don't get run.
0: (laughs) So a few weeks ago, I had Sean Wilman on, and we just, just discussed um, looking at sexual ethics and trying to build a positive picture of what the Bible puts forward as a sexual ethic and what St. Paul has to teach us about what marriage is for and and not delaying talking to your pastor about these things. And we all know that there is a a gulf between the pro-life movement and the pro-choice movement. They they emphasize completely different things in terms of abortion. But despite that gulf, even within the church's pro-life movement, there there seems to be a similar mindset uh, that kind of runs behind it that allows for all kinds of contraception, uh, something that Willman discussed as well. Uh, you know, the, the, the mindset of every child should be a wanted child. And like Jeff Goldblum's character in the first Jurassic Park said, when he's getting the tour of everything, he said, You know, we were so excited that we could, we never stopped to think whether or not we should. And I think this goes for Christians and contraception. But I also think that it goes for other things within the sexual ethic. And, you know, we're dealing with really kind of a crazy time in terms of sexual ethics. And we tend to think like it just popped up out of nowhere. But usually in our recent past or even not so recent past, there are uh, certain frameworks of thinking that have led to this. And so the most recent, of course, is kind of the transgender movement. So what are the things, perhaps, that have been a gateway to a transgender type of thinking, that this is fine and this is totally in keeping with uh, who we are as human beings? What kind of thinking has led to this?
1: I think looking back at the turn of the century, 19th to 20th, is where we can if we had to establish this is kind of a a turning point we certainly could and that is where a lot of the conversation regarding contraception or population especially comes in so -hmm. i'm thinking of thomas malthus and even darwin and the idea that oh the earth is growing in population and it'll be overpopulated and so if you wanted to put a best construction on people were worried will there be enough space will be there be enough food and so that led to some of the ideas behind uh, eugenics and some of the, the thinking behind that, which is largely born uh, of Darwin's thinking in a number of ways. And so those ideas were out there. And I think the churches, by and large, had a, a resistance to these things. These are ungodly. These are mm-hmm. anti-life. Uh, and so therefore, we're not going to involve ourselves with them. And a longtime position of the church was to not restrict or impede the fruitfulness of the womb. So this mm-hmm. is an idea that it was generally accepted. I often talk about in, in teaching about sexual ethics, well, when did you first hear about this? When did you first learn about this? And people would say, oh, I've no one's ever said that. I've never heard a pastor say X, Y, or Z about sexual ethics or the Sixth Commandment. And that's a very real reality, too, that some people have just been born into that environment. It's like the, the fish saying, hey, how's the water? Like, what's water? We just, it's the environment we're in. Uh, we've never heard anything otherwise, but there was a time when these things like family-size limitation or eugenics or other ideas regarding life were abhorrent to the leaders of the church, and they spoke out against them pretty clearly. Now, I would say this, um, often in this conversation, especially within our Lutheran circles, uh, the, the, the book, The Marriage Manual by Walter A. Meyer, comes up, uh, for better, not for worse, first published in 1935, And so he's speaking about these things. I think if we read it today, you'd be shocked. It's like, did he write this for right now, for 2023? Because he's speaking about things in the mid-30s that we would think are relatively new, which is to say they've been going on for a long time. They've been Mm -hmm. happening more so than just um, at the turn of the century or even at the 1950s. I I am not now nor have ever been a boomer apologist, but I will say this. They have a lot of things laid at their feet, which are not necessarily fair. I think one of the general tropes is, well, the whole world was great. 1950s were handed to them and they just blew it. I think that's one, unfair. And (laughs) two, they inherited something from the generation before them and from their fathers before them. And so if we're being honest, we can't just say, yep, it was all good until you guys blew it. That's not correct. Because, like I said, Meyer was writing about this in 35 and the Anglican Conference of Bishops in the Lambeth Conference was talking in 1930 about the use of contraceptions and family limitations. So those are both ideas that we'd say, oh, yeah, that's like, you know, 1950s, 1960s stuff. Their birth control pill was introduced in 1960, and that's when it began. Incorrect. Yeah. And so I think to speak accurately and fairly about these things, we have to look, like you said, to the, to the, the tracks that were laid down even before the train got to this particular station. But I think one of the ideas that brought us to the transgender movement, I remember when, oh, I think it was a couple of years ago, either Time Magazine, they had a a cover issue called The Transgender Tipping Point. And that was a big deal. That was the (laughs) cover of Mainstream, big magazine. And someone might have seen that magazine on the counter in the library and go, oh, I've never heard of that. And that was the first time they've ever heard of transgenderism. But the idea of transgenderism and the ethics behind it Have been going on for a long, long time. it's only when it became public that you started to hear about it from your little Midwest Midwest library or something like that. So I think one of the things that got us here was a general idea that the body, its use has to be a self-fulfilling and positive thing in all circumstances. And that will always entail us doing things that will be good for us, good for neighbor, good for the environment. Even environmentalism of Amalthus was... Uh, coming to a head at this time. So one of those ideas, and I'm going to bring this up, is the sin of transgenderism. We have rightly condemned that idea because it is against God's created order. It takes something that God made, made you male, and you would say to God, I think you got that wrong. I'm going to undo that. I'm going to take steps to undo that. I'm going to have elective surgery. I'm going to engage in hormone therapy. I'm going to say, God, you got that wrong. Allow me to correct what you got wrong. That is a way that they would describe it. Maybe they wouldn't use those words. They'd say something more like, "I'm going to finally be who I really am," which is just a euphemism for rejecting how God made you to be.
0: Yeah. And so there's there's so, that idea. Yeah. So the it sounds like one of the main kind of mindset frameworks that it, that's operating, kind of like the DOS program behind you know every Windows operating system is. <laughs> um the 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 idea that you stated that our bodies and the things of creation are meant to fulfill our own desires instead of fulfilling the desires of the one who created and created all things
1: certainly and that really the century of self is that very influential book that was uh, written this year uh, this last century and it reflects pretty well the thought that... I'm the I'm the beginning and ending of happiness, of fulfillment, and of moral good, and therefore, if those things do not accord with my own desires and really authentic me, uh, they can be set aside or rejected. And I think mm-hmm. again, if to put to put the best construction on these things, some people would say, "Well, this is for the good of the environment. I want to make sure there's enough food for me here in America and those those people over there." But as with anything, give inch, take mile people would take these ideas, these exceptions to morality, and then turn them into rules. And that is Mm -hmm. a a big problem with six commandment type issues is you'd be discussing um, sexual ethics with someone and they'd say, yeah, but what about this really rare, really often not pursued exceptional strange circumstance? And you'd have to, (laughs) as a pastor, as a theologian say, well, I guess, yes, in that circumstance, that's an extra difficult thing. And then you go down that path and essentially grant justification for, for the action they're talking about. Whereas the better thing to do, the more faithful thing to do is start with God's will, Scar- start with God's design, mm-hmm. his purpose, and the blessings thereof, and just introduce that as the teaching and then deal with exceptions as they come along and gen- gently and genuinely try to help those people be more faithful. But it has come mm-hmm. often to the case, especially when it comes to sexual ethics, even on like contraception and marriage, cohabitation, some of the things that Wilman talked about, that a lot of these things were... I wouldn't say unheard of because that's, that's unfair. We're not, we're not so new in our sexual ethics in the 21st century that we're doing things never heard of before, but it is very much more out there and accepted. And I think that's where we struggle. So these things have always gone on. There's nothing new under the sun, but we are becoming rapidly the outliers who hold a biblical Christianity and hold to Mm -hmm. God's will for, for marriage, for children, and for living our sexual lives according to his blessing. And so anything like that will make you kind of a rebel and will make you kind of an outlier, which is to say mm-hmm. it'll take the strength that Christ grants to the faithful to hold on to these things, holding on to the truth of God's word versus succumbing to the waves and the currents of the culture around us. And all of a sudden we're swept away and we look, we look back and go, how did we get so far down this track? And that's, I think, really morally speaking, one of the things that can be talked about here. So, for example, the idea of transgenderism is is moving from God made me this way. They probably wouldn't use that language, but I'm going to change nature. I'm going to undo nature and the will that has been put upon me. And this is a similar idea with with the act of vasectomy. Vasectomy would say God made me to be a fruitful man. He made me to be married to this woman. He made me to be fruitful, but I think he got it wrong. I'm going to undo that Mm -hmm. by using surgery, by using... The mutilation of the flesh. And that sounds a lot like transgenderism in a lot of ways, but we wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. make that connection because it's been going on for quite a while. The first elective vasectomy was in 1899. And ever since then, <laughs> it's just kind of slowly and surely become part of the options for limiting population or reducing number of children. And you look back and go, well, was there ever a time when that wasn't something we did? Was there ever a time when that wasn't an option for the conscientious um, environmental person? And that's where we have to look back to. And I think one, one thing we can do, one thing we can look back on is kind of the, the publications or the instant, instantiations of the idea. That's often quite revealing to me. Let's look at these engrams. Yeah. When when a, when a word would show up in text and literature and as you might imagine, for a vasectomy, it's kind of low and flat, and then it pops up around the turn of the century, and then it skyrockets in the 60s and 70s. And that's one when it came yeah. to the imagination or the, to the minds of many people, and it became acceptable within the church. And that's one of the things that I think we as Christians and as leaders in the church need to address is not so much what had happened in the past, but... What are we saying about it now? What's being spoken from our pulpits in our premarital counseling in catechesis? Because silence is the killer of faithfulness. And just because you assume that everyone else thinks like you or knows this is wrong, don't assume it, say it, proclaim it, that they might know for sure that this is God's will and this is against God's will. Because that is one way in which we'd say, well, we've never formally come out, for example, in in convention and supported and uh, said hurrah to vasectomy but it's just something we don't talk about. It's just something we don't really address or think about.
0: Yeah. yeah. I I like that point you made about how silence is the killer to faithfulness. That really is true. Our our lack of being direct. And even if we um you know think that we have talked about it often, we have talked about it in such a roundabout way or beating around the bush way that it doesn't actually hit home to those who are listening because we haven't really said anything directly. And thinking about that directness um, uh, as uncomfortable as it can be, um, what are some ways that we should be thinking about addressing directly, not just vasectomy in particular, or transgenderism in particular. But even the, again, the mindset that goes behind it, uh, is it uh, a desire to avoid all kind of pain and difficulty and just have self-pleasure? How can we begin to directly approach not just the final act, but even all of the mindset that leads to it, kind of all the the addictive pleasure-seeking that goes along with it?
1: Does that make sense? Of course. And certainly so much is bound up in the heart behind an action that is taken and yeah. the circumstances and environments that that led to that moment. Because no decision is made in a vacuum just as a thought experiment, but it is born of the generation you're born into, the cultural environment around you. A lot of mm. people will, will put away sexual ethics or they will reduce Christian sexual ethics by saying, well, culturally, it was way different then, and we are much more advanced, or we are we are so different from that particular environment that Paul was addressing in Corinth, for example, that we couldn't possibly <laughs> right. do those same things. And that's a cop-out, by and large, just to say, that's too hard. I don't want to do that. And I have this convenient cultural context card to throw down right here <laughs> and say, nope, right. no, thanks, not for me. But truly, to, yeah. to our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, the heart behind the thing is really where the, the sin is formed, and it gives birth to this particular action. And so that's mm-hmm. when we have to give our heart an examination. So, for example, in any of these moral issues, um, especially regarding Sixth Commandment things in marriage and children, what is the, the point that I'm trying to make or what is the thing I'm trying to avoid has to be asked. And if it's a thing unconsidered, that is often where a lot of dangerous things happen, especially if I'm just going with the cultural flow around me. Well, I learned from the girls in school or I learned from the movie or I learned from whatever, that this is kind of the the normal, the standard that we would do. So we're receiving our catechesis from the culture instead of the catechesis of our Lord's word and the church, which should be the Mm -hmm. home for any kind of teaching, especially the things that are as important as this. So examination of the heart issues is there, which is to say you can't put a blanket statement on all these um, six commandment or sexual ethic issues. So for example, there are uh, Mm -hmm. exceptions when it comes to well, is there ever a reason why a couple should seek to not become pregnant for a particular time or for a particular moment for a health thing or for this idea? Yes, there very well could be. And in that circumstance, talk to your pastor and get some counsel there and make sure you are thinking about this, I think, fully and clearly with the with the idea and blessing of God's word being there. Um, but we should never let moral conundrums or difficulties say, well, it's always choosing the lesser of two evils Because that can be a real slippery slope and do all of a sudden, well, at least it's not that you name something, you know, really terrible and morally monstrous, which makes your little bugaboo or peccadillo sound not so bad by comparison. But I I have a quote here from uh, the Walter A. Meyer book, which is, we should never obviate one difficulty by introducing another. Christian ethics do not permit the selection of the lesser of two evils, but demand the rejection of all that is morally reprehensible, unquote. Mm -hmm. So that sh- it shouldn't be, well, let me pick the, the least bad one, but what's the most faithful one? How close can I get to living in alignment with God's will and seeking his blessing? Because therein lies the, the fruit of obedience is the blessing of our Lord upon us in our lives now, not how much can I possibly get away with and still call myself faithful and a Christian?
0: yeah. It, th- that's a really good point about the lesser two evils. We're, we're already thinking in terms of the lowest con- common denominator, right? We're not thinking about the most possible faithfulness.
1: Which is a strange you know, dichotomy of how do we get to one side of that equation for the other, like maximum faithfulness and blessing thereof versus maximum permissiveness and distance from the, the boundary line or close to the boundary line that we might still be considered this. So yeah, that, that does, again, reflect the heart attitude and certainly mm. the fallenness of the sinful nature that would say, well, I really want to get away from what I have to do here, but I still, <laughs> pride keeps me from going all the way. I still want to be called a Christian. I still want to go to church. Um, but you know what? If my particular church body has changed their view on this particular sexual ethic, I'll just go down to the road to the other church body, which is now all of a sudden changed. So I have a number mm-hmm. of thoughts like that, especially regarding the Lutheran synods in the last 100 years or so. There was not a time so long ago when the LCA and the ALC, as they were, uh, were very adamant against homosexuality, sodomy, and female ordination. That was what we'd mm-hmm. say, yeah, as LCMS Lutherans, we agree. Uh, but then you go to those churches today, and they have an entirely different tune, which you know, raises the question, well, did God's word change? Did, did the truth change? Or did that particular church body change? And we know that's the latter. They changed their opinion and their practice. And so we as the LCMS, as faithful Lutherans would say, well, good. We'd never be like that. We would never do such a thing where we'd have a practice that was in, enshrined in God's word and held to according to our faithfulness. But then we look back 100 years before or, or whatever the particular time frame is and go, oh, we've changed on that particular thing, which also raises the question for us for self-reflection. Did God's word change, or or did we change? And so that's why I, I sometimes point out the, the arc of discussion about sexual ethics and particularly uh, contraception. So Walter A. Meyer has that book for better, not for worse, first published by Concordia in 1935. And people say, look there, there's the opinion of all Lutherans. There's the opinion of you know welcoming all the children God would give to you and not limiting by by surgery or contraception or medical uh, things the way you would receive children. Well. The reason why he had to say that was because there was a precipitous drop in the birth rate already uh, in the Mm -hmm. early part of the 20th century. And so that's why he was making those comments. Um, I always say you don't have to make comments on the sun rising in the east because everyone knows it. It just happens. You don't need to make comments about it. It's (laughs) going to happen. You start bringing it up when it starts rising in the north or something and say, whoa, it should be not this way. So Meyer was making those comments. And then often, especially along the lines of um, publications from Concordia, they would say, well, we have Alfred Ray Winkle. We have Planned Parenthood published in 1959. And they might say, Well, look, mm-hmm. look at a big difference between 1935 and 1959. It was Ray Winkle that really opened the floodgates. Before that, everyone was completely faithful, and he is the one that opened the floodgates. That also be incorrect. He was just kind of saying the quiet part out loud. He was saying, This has been going on, this is happening in our parishes pretty, pretty extensively, and here's the mm-hmm. best Christian way to do it. So I'm not defending what he's saying, but certainly I would defend him by saying he's not the man that is to blame for the change in sexual ethics regarding the fruitfulness of the womb. And I'll bring that up to a close in that arc between 35, 59, and 99, when I was in uh, catechesis and confirmation, I never heard anything about this. It was kind of, I would say, a very standard idea of people who have been raised most recently in the Lutheran faith of, well, contraception and birth control, if used in a Christian way, is good. Just don't do abortion. We know that. We are big and strong on no abortion, but as long as you do it, you know, faithfully, thoughtfully, and for the good of everyone else, go ahead, which is what a big shift from 59 and then from 35 and previous generations, which is to say there are some people out there. I would wager a number of them who've never heard, hey, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to birth control, when it comes to this, don't do that or do do that according to God's word. Oh, I've never, no one's ever said that. I've never heard a pastor say that. And that has to be considered as we reach people and talk to people, and not just the, the finger-wagging don't, but here are the blessings of Psalm 127 and Psalm 128. Here are the blessings of Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 5. This is God's will for man and wife, for children, for the population of our mm-hmm. race and faith. These are good things. And so I certainly think there's, there's much to be said for being an accentuator of the positive things, not merely a finger-wagging don't do this.
0: Yeah. There's always a tendency, it seems to me, to try to, you know, point to where it all went off the rails, uh, in some ways to, I don't know, alleviate our responsibility or to, to displace fault. And Mm -hmm. I'm just curious: have we forgotten what our mothers taught us about pointing fingers? That there Mm -hmm. are, there are. There are instances where it might not be specifically our fault, but that doesn't alleviate us of responsibility in moving forward. Like we want to point the finger to say, this is when it happened. So, you know, almost seemingly, oh, well, uh, instead of saying something went wrong, and maybe it would be helpful to see how it went wrong so we don't repeat it, but not in the sense of we just want to blame someone. How should Christians today um do that same kind of self-reflection with regard to perhaps we actually contributed in some way to transgenderism by our failure to um to, to notice what god the fullness of what god was commanding us to do and to be uh, in his word and in order to receive the blessings that he would give like so that we're not the person that you know walks into the gas station and sees someone who looks like their life is a total mess, and you know become the Pharisee and say you know God I'm glad I'm not like them. Yeah. Instead, recognize they have addictions, we have different ones, and they just come by Amazon instead of you know back alleys.
1: <laughs> no, that's a that's a good point. Particularly the uh, it feels good to us to relieve ourselves of the blame or the guilt to say aha. If I can point back to this generation or this year or this document and say that introduced the idea into the church or that introduced the possibility of this practice into the church, I am thereby alleviated of the burden of blame for one. And then two of the responsibility to teach faithfully going forward. I think that is really a significant idea, too. So we're not only going to point back to the past and say this is where it happened it's it's useful to know that it's certainly useful to understand Hmm. how it developed what was the situation why it happened it's it's useful knowledge but then to say yes these fathers these particular people they erred they did a wrong thing but now going forward ethically and morally as christians if we were to continue in the same path as them without comment without uh repentance We'd be just as guilty. We would be just as guilty as them. So it is our responsibility to then roll back the sins of our fathers, as it were, and then to live out our life faithfully in both word and deed before our own sons, that we might hand them a better heritage and a better path forward instead of them being able to say of us, well, my father was a pastor in 2020 and 2023, and he never taught me this or showed me this. We'd be just as guilty as those people we point the finger at back down the line. And so it's crucial that we take positive action to present the goodness of God's word, to receive people's repentance, the changing of their mind, to think like God, to think with the church, and then the support as they live in this new way, because it will be increasingly difficult for the Christian to live faithfully, a sexually faithful life, uh, chaste and decent in all they do and say going forward, as we probably can forecast into the future. So therefore, Mm -hmm. we need to be more outspoken about the blessings and the goodness of the creator's order. Rather than stand offish and oh, I don't want to be political and I don't want to be you know controversial, so I'll just stay in my corner and just say Jesus loves you, Amen. It's true mm. that Jesus loves <laughs> you. There's so much. There's so much more that He loves you uh, with with His Word, with His teaching, with His instruction that will bless your life both here in time and there in eternity.
0: So uh, I want to go there. I want to talk about the positive vision of the blessings that God has for us, and then how we have, um, you know, set them aside in some way. Um, I, I suppose I should say, you know, before we start setting forward the ideal that, uh, there may be, uh, possibly be some exceptions to this, but they are just that exceptions. And if you think you fall into this, uh, please talk to your pastor. Um, what is that positive vision? What is the the what is the ideal, and that God has put forward in His Word, and and how have we uh, perpetrated a lie against that ideal in our own sexual ethics, particularly as it relates to vasectomy? Like, what do we need to repent is, of? Does that make sense?
1: Certainly, yeah. That is the place to start, and the ideal would be the creation the good creation of man and woman in the garden. So God made two sexes. Mm -hmm. Sexual dimorphism is the big word for male and female. And this is often articulated in the Old Testament. Our Lord himself talks about, did you not know he made them male and female? So we have the moral foundation or the scriptural foundation of the two sexes. There's the truth that we start with. Uh, We then would understand and receive those blessings of male and woman, man and woman, uh, coming together for children. And this is a blessing from our Lord. He says, this is the first word he says to male and woman, man and woman is be fruitful and multiply. That is a great blessing. And some people want to distinguish, mm-hmm. well, is it a command or a blessing? And it's it's yes. And it's wonderful that it's both a command and a blessing to be fruitful and multiply. And then after that, yeah. through uh, consecutive portions of the scriptures, those things are reinforced and double down on, if you will, is saying, yes, this is how God has made male and woman to operate. And then myriad examples of what happens when we intervene, not the least of which is the first intervention. Satan, his first attack was against marriage. His first attack is Mm -hmm. against the sexuality and the order that God has instilled in us. And it didn't go well then, and it never goes well to uh, take the good will of God and say, yes, but a little different or total rejection. I think that's another weakness of our our, of our ethics sometimes is to say, well, those people over there, they reject it entirely. Whereas I, I just take a little step off the path and just change the trajectory a couple degrees. And we would understand <laughs> that to be a variation or departure from God's word in any amount is sin and therefore worthy of mm-hmm. repentance and seeking to amend that particular step off the path to use colloquial, nice sounding language versus rejection of God's <laughs> order. So when it comes to the, the, the sin of rejecting God's created order for our bodies, we can rightly look out at the world of transgenderism and say, well, it's, it's completely perverse. They're undoing or trying to undo what God has done and making them male and female. And here's how their body is supposed to function. Here's the body parts that they use to function in that way. That is how God made them. And they're undoing it. But then we would not look at ourselves in the the situation of a vasectomy and say, well, God made me this way. He gave me this body part to do this thing. But I'm also rejecting that by surgery and by the rejection of the creator's order. And so it'd be hard for us Mm -hmm. to say, well, that one over there is particularly wrong. But my particular sin, eh, not so bad. Because why? Because it's been happening for a while. And that is a real danger in the longevity of particular sins or practices that are allowed to stand. If it's been happening for years, it doesn't seem as bad. But if it's new and fresh, a la transgenderism, that's easy to jump on. So the thought experiment is the LCMS in 100 years, for example, saying oh, transgender surgery in particular cases is totally acceptable, and it's fine that you would change your sex from male to female. That mm-hmm. should be an abhorrent thought to us right now, but it's not Just. unlike the idea that, that we have men saying, you know what, God made me fruitful and faithful, I'm going to undo that and have surgery to cut that off and not be faithful and fruitful anymore those two ideas could go together i think it's again just slower train on the same track
0: yeah so so recognizing that first thing that that you have departed from the word and will of god the the blessings that he desires to give and and essentially you're saying no thanks I, i'll make my own way yeah that's that's kind of that first uh, s- step, if you will, of repentance the The, the first acknowledgement is that this is what God's word says, and i I don't actually believe it.
1: I think that's the part that people are are not likely to admit readily is that while well, I'm a christian, I, I belong to Christ and I live with His word. but to say, There's part of that word that I reject entirely, and in its Mm -hmm. its wholeness, I'd say no no, no to that part, which is essentially a quatinous subscription to the Bible. Insofar as it pleases me, I will accept this word and live by it, but the parts that do not accord with my will, well, I'll set those aside. Whereas we, as Lutherans, as Christians, have a quia subscription to God's word because it is truth, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We Mm -hmm. therefore submit ourselves under that word and receive the blessings by being there. Always that that language of blessing versus curse uh, remains. And we have the chance to choose faithfulness or choose cursing. This comes very clearly in Deuteronomy that God gives his people through Moses the opportunity to choose faithfulness. This day, choose life, choose to live but some people don't. Uh, They do not choose life Mm -hmm. and they choose a wrong choice, but it doesn't need to end there. There is repentance. There is forgiveness for those who have wandered from the Lord's word, who have chosen something. So for example, when it comes to, I've I've already heard of a few cases of those who have elected transgender surgery and then regretted it, sought to undo Mm -hmm. it or repent from it. And insofar as that is possible, physically, they should do that, but morally and in their heart level, turn to God and I'm sorry. Lord, forgive me for this sin, for rejecting the body you gave me and the life you've given to me in this body. I repent of that. That is important to do. Now, whether that means they can undo everything, not necessarily. But that's why we don't place our confidence in the flesh entirely. Our confidence is the last day, it is in the resurrection of Christ when we will be raised with new bodies, perfect, recreated bodies. That will not bear these same scars of our sins in our past life but rather they will be created in god's image with the wholeness that he intended without our interference without our malevolence
0: Mm-hmm. whenever you begin upon repentance uh, particularly that uh, that first action the sorrow over sin and the the faith in christ that he forgives that sin what always attends that sorrow contrition and faith are fruits then thereof what do the fruits of that particular sin that particular rejection of god's word and blessing how do, how do those fruits take shape where do they what do they look like and what sort of spiritual counsel would you offer to, say, a man or uh, someone who had gone through transgender surgery or someone who had had a vasectomy? What sort of counsel would you give them in demonstrating the fruit of repentance?
1: It certainly starts with repentance and, like you said, sorrow over sin. And that might come in stages. That might come with patient application of God's word and prayer Mm -hmm. in pastoral counsel, because the message just being blasted into the world and possibly their ears is the opposite. They receive Mm -hmm. so much positive affirmation for transgender surgery or living a particular uh, sexual lifestyle from the sources of the media around them that needs to be matched or at least challenged by the truth of God's word. And so you certainly need to have that Mm -hmm. understanding that as you approach someone, if they've been living 50 years with this particular idea, it's hard to undo it in one second. It's hard to do it with one application of God's word. I think we'd all like to see an instant turnaround a big 180 and saying, you know what? I lived this way for 50 years, but now I realized I was wrong. I need to repent and I will walk completely faithfully from this day until the Lord calls me home. That would be best, but often stubbornly, that is not how we are built. In fact, Mm -hmm. the longer a sin has persisted and been accepted and not spoken against in the church or culturally reinforced, the harder it is to turn from it, regardless of the testimony of God's word against it. So there is certainly an element of pride when it comes to holding on to, hey, this particular sin here, I've been doing it for a while. And if I were to admit I was wrong about this, what would that say about this, this, or this? I can't I can't be wrong, which I find to be a strange posture to take as Christians who our life revolves around repenting of our sins, turning from our sin and seeking the Lord's forgiveness for our sins. So to admit you're a sinner, at least for those of us raised in the Missouri Synod, that's part of what we do every week. We call ourselves poor, miserable sinners and not pro pro forma, but truly. And then to receive that forgiveness is grounding for our entire life of the faith so to have someone come along and say, I can't admit that was a sin because that would mean other things were a sin, and I might have been wrong about something. Well, that is, that is certainly the nature of being human, being wrong about things, being corrected and loved by God's word toward more faithfulness. So there's certainly an amount of pride that goes along with it. I won't admit this thing because that would mean so much for my life previously, and going forward, It might I might have to change the way that I uh, live, the way that I receive pleasure and the way that i have my lifestyle so there's a lot of implications not just okay i believe god's word now uh nothing nothing really changes it should change it god's word should be transformational to the sinner to move them from the darkness of sin to the light of christ
0: so what so when that is when when that has begun um uh particularly uh, let's focus just on Kind of the, the the Christian male who has kind of adopted mm-hmm. the same kind of mindset as uh, has become a a gateway to transgenderism or at least like pre transgender if mm-hmm. you will. Um, wh- wh- what kind of advice are you going to give this man who recognizes, oh, Pastor? I, I think I think I've done this evil thing, and. Um, and say, say at this point, has he's discussed this with his wife? Um, or, or maybe we can just begin there. Are you going to say you have you talked to your wife about this? Because, um, we have, how are you going to help them through this? What kind of counsel are you going to give uh, to this man who perhaps is sitting in a sermon or in a Bible class or or listens to this? What what are you going to what what kind of advice are you going to give them?
1: I think on the the spiritual plane, first and foremost, the idea of uncovering a transgression is a blessing. Turning those things over Mm -hmm. to the Lord and giving them to him, letting them be washed in the blood of Christ and forgiven. There is healing and peace that will come with that that you can't really imagine until, until you go down that road. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, Psalm 32 says. But when I confessed my sin to the Lord, he forgave my iniquity. So there's the spiritual idea that Christ will bless, one, repentance, and two, his forgiveness actually matters. It actually changes you and does something. It gives you a new life. So this is dying, the old Adam dying, and the new Adam rising. Then in the practical department, there is the opportunity sometime to have a reversal of a vasectomy. This is something that I've heard from a number of men who have made the same, uh, conclusion. They, they had the, the surgery for whatever reason they did it and they lived their life. And then they were given the information or given the idea for God's will for their life and said, Oh, I've made a mistake. This is one chance where you can undo it. There is the reversal surgery. It's possible to regain fruitfulness after a vasectomy reversal surgery. Uh, whereas that might not be possible in all cases. And or the way of women might be beyond your wife at that time. So what do you do then? This is another chance for mm-hmm. you to repent and turn from former sins and say, Lord, I sinned against you. I rejected your will and your word for that. I'm sorry, Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. This is a, the, the miracle of forgiveness. And this is the miracle of repentance. So mm-hmm. how it will change your life going forward and your, your particular practice, it, it varies, your mileage may vary, as I hear Ramirez say often, but it might actually it might actually change the way your lifestyle moves. And for that, you'll need support. You'll need the, the encouragement of your pastor, other faithful Christian families in your parish or around you to say, this is good. And this is something you wouldn't put on Facebook. You wouldn't say, hey, I'm making this big change in my life. What do you think, people? That, that would be an unlikely scenario. That would be um, extreme honesty if that was the case, or as you will probably need support On a more discreet level from your pastor certainly from your wife and encourage her by the same scriptures by the same spirit that we seek to live as close as possible to the will of god as detailed in the holy scriptures to repent of those situations where we've departed from that where we've rejected that or perverted that in a certain way and thereby receive those blessings and receive that confidence he means what he says, and he will bless those who walk according to the path. And so that that looks broadly like a big change in lifestyle and also potentially just what you're used to. We have to remember that if we get into a habit of doing something, it's not just turn, a, turn on the dime to change from it. So it'll go slow. It'll be difficult. It'll be painful. It'll be humbling. But the humility before the Lord is a blessing. This is a chance for you to grow in the image of Christ who humbled himself And gave of himself Mm -hmm. to do God's will. And that's what you could be modeling as a man, as a husband who turns from this thing and says, This is going to be painful to me. This might be a cost of my pleasure or of my comfort, of my lifestyle, but it will make me more faithful. It'll make me more Mm -hmm. like Christ and increase the intimacy of my walk with Jesus. And that trumps everything else.
0: Yeah. What if, you know, what if the husband comes to this conclusion? And 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 his wife is not there with him on it. Uh, what does that kind of scenario look like in pastoral counsel? That is a
1: difficult one, certainly, <laughs> uh, especially yeah. if 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 you came to this initial decision together, and this was we're making this choice for ourselves and our marriage, and then hey, you change tune here. We had a deal, that kind of thing. That that can be very potentially uh, challenging for a couple. And so the idea then there is to. Again, patiently apply the word of God and pray. But the assumption that when I came to this particular conclusion, ergo, everyone else around me in my sphere also arrived at it at the same time, rarely is that the case. So you might come to it or your wife might come to it and on different timelines. And so to bring each other along faithfully and lovingly is more difficult than it sounds, but it is certainly worth doing and certainly not to draw the hard lines. Okay, here's the line in the sand here. And if you don't do X, I'm going to do Y. Because those ultimatums are ultimately not fruitful, nor do they represent the tenderness and the love between man and wife that should be modeled by the Christian couple. So it is certainly a challenge to come along, but I think the application of God's word, as always, in prayer is the place to start. And then patience and laying down your own life and your own desires for the sake of the other. That has to be considered uh, certainly by the husband as, as, as Christ to his wife, but also uh, by the wife in her service to her husband and her helping of her husband. But it will be a, a major discussion, I would assume, on a lot of ways and one that would get other people involved. People who've been there before, if you know other couples who've had similar um, you know, moments of revelation, oh, I should change the way I live. That might be useful. Then you don't feel like mm-hmm. I'm the only one isolated in this weird situation, this ethical uh, dilemma. Nope. Believe me, other people have gone through it and can give you support, give you encouragement, point you to resources that might better help you think about it and pray about it, thereby bringing you closer, one, to those people, strengthening the body of Christ, and two, hopefully moving you toward faithfulness as a
0: Christian, as a couple. Mm -hmm. Now, what is your counsel to other pastors who might be uh, fearful of bringing these things up because of the the pushback that he would receive, uh, particularly as you noted, uh, when it, in that arc of wham Ray Winkle and your confirmation, um, they, they just haven 't heard this. Um, yeah. What is your suggestion to pastors on 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 how to begin bringing these things up?
1: I'd have to give right off the bat, there's no easy way to do it. Sadly, there's no uh, easy mode option on this one because (laughs) it is such a foundational and personal issue for marriages, for families, for your parish. There's no way to kind of dip your toe into the water real gently and then it kind of continues at that nice gentle pace. There will come a time when the truth of God's word and its application to our practice over the last so many years will have a confrontation and that will always be jarring. And so that is the first thing to say. There's certainly the element of bumping up against people who believe something very strongly, something very personally about themselves that they've never heard otherwise spoken against from a pastor or even from God's word. I was actually quite surprised. So this is me being, you know, a Christian, uh, 30 years old, never really hearing someone say, yeah, you shouldn't try to limit the number of children you have and you shouldn't use contraception. How am I an LCMS Luther my whole life? And I haven't really heard that until pretty much after seminary so if that was my experience someone who's very close and to the the life of the lutheran church and the teachings of our, our denomination i honestly didn't hear that until after i was 30 years old and so i have to consider that's probably the case for a lot of people and therefore as someone who's been in that situation think back how did it go for you was it shocking uh were you instantly making a change or did you have to wrestle with some things that you have to pray about some things mm-hmm. for a long time, and let your heart be humbled and changed, and so that will undoubtedly be the case, particularly for those who are older and can't necessarily make, you know, in program changes to get back on the particular track. Uh, they'll have to just admit, okay, this was this was wrong. I did a, a, a sinful thing against God's word, but there is forgiveness for that, and. I can teach the next generation. I think that's very important also. That's that's one point I think sometimes is out there in the general conversation regarding these things. There are pastors who can teach about, you know, sexual ethics and contraception, but they're the only the pastors that have 12 or 19 kids. Only they mm. can properly speak about God's will in word for 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 sexuality and children. I think false. I think uh, Walter Meyer is a great example. He had two sons. He was blessed with two sons and he taught faithfully about contraception, about the fruitfulness of the womb and the benefits of the Christian life. So therefore, don't let your particular situation dictate, well, I can only teach so much about this because look at me and they'll look at me. Everyone must and can speak faithfully about God's word after study, after prayer, that they would deliver it to the next generation. I think that's a, a big one for me, not only when it comes to sexual ethics for my sons, but for all of life. There's been things that have been glossed over, passed over, or just mishandled in the church. Well, to continue down that path and not take steps to correct it, again, culpability would belong to me as well. But I can help the next generation be richer, if you will, than I was or my fathers before me and enjoy those blessings without the years of regret or lament that I didn't have this information. Where was this? How can my father, how can my pastor... Didn't give me this information. I would have loved to heard this when I was 14 or 19 or 25. We have the chance now. Mm-hmm. So we can do better than what we received in certain situations and give more and more faithfulness to our sons.
0: And it and it hits everyone, it seems to me, uh, at a different time. So it's not like a one and done thing in yep. terms of this kind of teaching. It is a constant thing that needs to be taught we know we know this in in other areas like you don't just teach once about the blessings of the liturgy and think oh well you know it's done and over uh, and perhaps this is one of the the things that some pastors find frustrating is that you're always revisiting things you've already discussed and uh, if you go into your work understanding that you're going to have to revisit and you're going to have to talk about the same things over and over again, Um, just like you proclaim the gospel over and over again, uh, it doesn't become such a a frustrating uh, enterprise. It begins to, this is just how we are. We, uh, as fallen, uh, hard-hearted creatures, uh, rebellious creatures— uh, need constant reminding. And, uh, and if you take up your task with that in mind, uh, I think that does alleviate some of the, the, uh, the frustration that you might feel, uh, moving forward.
1: Certainly. If the thought was, I'm going to have one Bible class or one sermon on this topic, and that's the only chance I'm going to get. And if I don't, you know, convert everyone, I will have failed. That's a lot of pressure. And that's a daunting task. But I would ask, how long do you plan to be a father? How long do you plan to teach, to shape, and catechize your children? How long do you plan to be a parish pastor? Hopefully, the answer is many, many years, as the Lord gives me blessing of life. And that will be the the steady and regular opportunity to present these truths, to highlight them. Particularly, we do this with our family when it comes to uh, movies that would showcase something that's not Christian. We would say, okay, what is our chance to critique this? in in light of the sixth commandment and what should a Christian do in this particular situation? So the teaching doesn't have to be just sitting down with, with the Bible or with a marriage manual for one session. It can happen all over the place all the time, as you observe the world around you, as you observe other families, as you observe other Christians, we can say, oh, look how these people are doing this, this is wonderful. Or, ah, you can see how this is hurting them because they've set aside this truth and then the fruit of that um, rejection is this. And so there's lots of application for it, but certainly the idea of, it's a, one, a one-time application of the truth or not. No, it should be the patient, endurance teaching of, of the one who plans to be there like our Lord will always be there for us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And he is so patient with us as we stumble and trip along the path, seeking him or rejecting him. There he still is. And there he still is to receive us when we do turn to him. So we have that example and model with our father in heaven that he will bring back and receive the prodigal, even if it's been years of waste with the inheritance, going to prostitutes and partying. That's not a dissimilar analogy to what we have been talking about today. I've made these poor sexual decisions, or I've made these poor decisions with my ethics, but Father, I'm returning, you know, I came to myself, I finally came to myself, and when did that happen for the prodigal, when did it happen for you, or me, or anyone out there, God only knows, but when that happens, be there to support, rush in with the scriptures, with encouragement, with enthusiasm, like this is wonderful that you're doing this, and I support you in this as your pastor, or as your father, or as your brother, because this will be a blessing to you, and the generations that come from you.
0: Yeah. So uh, earlier you you gave us the three things uh as to why we've uh, stated that transgender surgery is wrong. You know, it's an elective surgery, it mutilates the flesh Philippians chapter 3, it rejects the creator's order Genesis 1. Uh how do you respond, you know, and and, and then you've kind of pointed out how this is really similar to vasectomy, a, a, the same kind of mindset. How do you respond when almost inevitably y- you you highlight this and someone says, are you saying that I'm transgender, Pastor? Are you saying that I'm just as bad as that? Um, how, do, how do we respond when it's typically the case when a sin is pointed out to us? You know, we feel backed in a corner. We feel like— um, People are just you know, coming after us. How do, how do, we, how do we respond to, to that kind of backlash, so to speak? Certainly
1: the idea that, well, you raise a good question could be said without particularly affirming, a, yes, you are entirely analogous with the transgender person. <laughs> but as you highlight those three um, you know, criteria that, well, how, are, how is that different necessarily than uh, the transgender person? well, they might say, well, their, their will and their desire was to reject, you know, what God made them to be. Yeah, I know. And so that's a similar thing. And it's very possible, very possible that that man has never thought that before. And so that's the first time Mm. he even considered a thought like that. Like, I didn't think I was rejecting God and denying creation and the creator's order. I thought I was just being a responsible parent for the sake of population or for, for my wife's health or for one of Mm. these things. So I would certainly say in general that the heart behind the two things is not exactly the same. And so that's why it would, like you said, the backlash might come out a little stronger, whereas the atheistic, you know, transgender uh, enjoyer would say, yep, that's entirely what I was trying to do. And I accomplished it versus the person who, mm-hmm. who thought they were being as faithful as they could be in light of the circumstances, in light of the instruction they previously received. That's one thing I often think about uh, is the shepherds, the teachers. There is the certain responsibility for them to deliver the sinner from their sin by teaching them by warning them um but if they don't well that that blood falls upon their head and that's a serious idea and so we have also to look at well who who are our teachers or what did they teach or not teach previously that doesn't excuse us we ultimately will one bear the the, the, the thorns if you will of this particular act but two would say well where was this person before me that's not a cop-out to remove all culpability from the man himself But to say, well, what was your heart when you did this? Why was it like that? And how does that accord with or discord from God's will in Genesis 1 or Psalm 127, for example? And that would give... Mm -hmm. I think occasion to reflect upon God's word, thereby taking the heat and the spotlight directly off, you know, the man, the act itself, it helps to just dis- disperse it toward, well, there's scripture, there's history, there's the general council of of pastors. And so there's more uh, objects, if you will, of the, of the heat in the particular moment. So the man doesn't feel like it's just magnified right on him. And he's the smallest, you know, most despicable person in the world. They can reflect upon God's will. And that will give them a chance, I think, to realize one, They're not the only one. And two, God, this would be the first time God forgave someone who made an error when it came to their sexuality (laughs) or to the rejection of the creator's order. They'd be one of many and one of many who received back with full um, support and love of the congregation. That's the other thing. We then, to see a sinner turn, can't say, well, you are now second class because you had to go through this process and you had to repent. So we're going to, you know, keep you around in the church, but you're really second class to us good people who've never had this problem. Obviously, that would be a terrible sin on on behalf of of those receiving the sinner back. Welcome him back fully, and then thereby walk with him toward faithfulness.
0: Mm -hmm. Is there anything that uh, we didn't bring up that you really wanted to highlight in terms of uh, the mindset behind the transgender movement and and how we need to be a little self-reflective and not just point fingers at them like, yeah, that's just crazy, or how could they do such a thing? Um, anything that we didn't talk about? I think we've, we've
1: covered a lot of good things here. I certainly think if if one begins to look closely and turn over so many rocks, as it were, they'd start to see some things that maybe they didn't initially plan on seeing, and what that might reveal mm-hmm. in their own life or or their church and that can be a, a harrowing experience. And so uh, prepare yourself, I would say, as you turn to the Lord's word and seek to live it out in every aspect, that one thing might reveal another. And you'd say, well, that's a chain reaction that I don't, I don't really want to kick off. And so therefore, I will not do that and then remain you know, secure in my current status, whether it's maximal faithfulness or not. At least I won't have to deal with the uncomfortable feelings of finding out that I truly am a poor, miserable sinner. But I would encourage Mm -hmm. everyone, myself included, that there's never any reason to fear repentance and turning to God's word. You can't be hurt by applying God's word faithfully. So though it will feel painful, the Lord chastens his sons, those whom he loves. He certainly does that. And it'll feel like pain. But this is improvement and this is blessing. So I would say never be afraid to seek to live according to God's will in the maximum way, even though it might entail further sins that you didn't know about or misunderstandings that you had or corrections of previous things you thought were orthodox oh maybe those weren't so orthodox that's a good thing though it be painful Mm -hmm. though it be challenging it'll ultimately make you a better pastor father christian and it'll help improve the church for the sake of faithfulness to god's word in all circumstances and that is a good thing
0: well thank you for Bringing this really important uh, topic and all the things that go b- behind it, bring it to the forefront of our minds and so that we have the opportunity to be self-reflective. Um, I appreciate your insight in these things, your obvious pastoral care that is is behind it uh, and for your time. Thanks for your time, uh, for coming on here and helping us all work through these Uh, difficult issues that are pressing down upon us and how we can individually or corporately as a synod uh, take a look at our own practices to see perhaps how we have by our silence or by actively engaging in certain practices kind of allowed this to happen so thank you Dan for your time your insight and uh Uh, blessings on all your future work. Thank you, brother. It was a pleasure to be on. Look forward to talking with you again.